I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch Pinbacker Origins. Sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. It's a hard one to choose for. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so, hey, Pete. Hey. How you doing? Pretty good. Uh, I was outside today, and I was just looking at the sun, and I'm like, hope that thing doesn't burn out, because it is useful. Yeah. It's a sunshine. It's a sun's kind of a big deal, I think. This it movie, is. Uh, this movie found a good thing to make a movie about. It made a good thing to make a movie out of. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, uh, uh, there's movies like... Uh, 40, 40 days and 40 nights. It's just about Jason Hartnett trying Josh Hartnett. Jason Hartnett. Did you, what, what did you combine there? Uh, <laughs> Jason, Jason Hartnett. Alexander oh, and yeah. Josh Hartnett. <laughs> I'd like to see the Jason Alexander version. <laughs> George gotta not have sex for 20 more days. <laughs> um, that's probably fairly easy for Jason Alexander, but very hard for George Costanza because uh, in that show, he's always dating a beautiful young woman. Yeah, but he's always fucking it up. Usually, sometimes directly as a result of sex. So, yeah. maybe he'd end up in a much more long-term relationship. Also, what a weird movie that was. What a weird movie. But, um, like, that's, that's a movie where I'm like, none of this is a problem. That would be a movie. The thing about that movie is if the sun goes out, you're rooting for the sun to go out. <laughs> Not so much in this movie uh, because we're in our third week of space horror. Uh, that is – now, again – I've been trying to explain it to you guys for weeks now. I don't feel like you're tracking, so let me try one more time. That is horror that takes place on Earth. Now, if you just nodded your head in agreement with what I just said, this is exactly the problem. You haven't been listening. It doesn't take place on Earth. You should have known that was a trick. It takes place in space. <sighs> I told you this is too high concept. It feels pretty – well, and again, as we as we really went into detail yesterday, space has multiple meanings. And I feel like the, the fact that it's a homophobe – not a homophobe, homophobe. <laughs> it's <a> homophobe. <laughs> <laughs> it's where you're you scared. The concept, the concept of space is homophobic. No, it's a homophobe. I didn't mean homophobe. Homophobe is where you're where you're scared of two words that are are spelled differently but sound the same. Homophobe sounds like it, how they say like Washington in some parts of the country. It just sounds like you're what like, you some kind of homophobe. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Boston accent. Um, Sorry, was that the Austrian part of Boston? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> There's a small settlement. It's in all the encyclopedias you look it up. Anyways, it's the third week of Space Horror, uh, and we're doing uh, the movie Sunshine. And why are we doing uh, a, a month, a themed month, and then a third movie? Well, that's because we're a podcast called We Love to Watch that does theme months. We pick a theme. We do movies around that theme for the month. And if we remember, we compare and contrast them. So, Peter, before we get into this, our third week... Our, our classiest picture so far. We did Event Horizon, which uh, I've never watched these two so close together. Uh, it is more of a remake than I remembered. <laughs> There's a lot of similarities. Uh, classier than Jason X. Both movies that we liked. But now we're getting to the, the real classy, the prestige space horror movies uh, with, with 2007's Danny Boyle. Uh, hot off of 
uh, 28 Days Later and about to, to win the Academy Award with Slumdog Millionaire. But I but I also think so while it's very similar to Event Horizon, I'm sure we're going to talk about it. This, uh, this, this whole plot reminds me of something else, Peter. And I think it's the closest we're ever going to get to a very loose adaptation of our favorite video game, Dark Souls, because the whole plot <laughs> is about rekindling the bonfire that that powers all life on Earth. I, I spend most weeks in this show comparing movies to Dark Souls, but I, I didn't get around to it in this one. Well, think and think about it, because What's-His-Face's character is basically like Doc Starker Kath, who's like, let the sun burn out. You oh, don't yeah, need to re- Yeah. How could you forget that name? Pinbacker. His name is Pinbacker? Pinbacker. Mm. So that's like a direct allusion to the fact that Hellraiser went to space or what? (laughs) All of these movies, uh, minus Alien, are kind of Hellraiser in space movies, but we decided to not do Hellraiser in space. I've never seen Hellraiser in space. Have Have you seen Hellraiser in space? Like on parts on the sci fi channel, and I was like, hmm, that's enough. Does he go to space? It's a technically accurate title if the title is, in fact, Hellraiser Goes to Space. <laughs> I think it's Hellraiser Bloodlines. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, I, it's also, it's one of those space movies that, like, doesn't utilize space at all, which is not true of... It just means they had, like, a fucking storage unit. They're like, well, we can't build a set since, and we can't light for outdoors, so <laughs> yeah. why don't we just convert this? Let's put a little command chair in this storage unit we have rented, and it's a space station now. Great. And Adam Scott was like, gee, guys, can I be in the movie? <laughs> Fellas, I'm, I'm fresh out of a Puppet Master movie, and I, I think I might want to step it up to a Hellraiser. Oh, this one's still getting a theatrical... W- Release? Gee whiz, guys. <laughs> I sure do love to be in the big pictures. <laughs> Movie You're saying stardom. this is coming out on 10 whole screens? <laughs> um, this must be the part of like, I don't know if, uh, if you still are listening to now, uh, are you talking R.E.M. to me? But he talks about for a while where he was like deciding he was only a big picture star and didn't want to be in TV. And it was like the mid 90s, like well before he had earned that that even modicum of getting to be in uh, TV or movies. Mm-hmm. I'm a big picture star. I'm a big picture star, guys. A- Adam Scott should be in this movie. He should be. He would fit right in. This is a good cast. He should cast. have played uh, Harvey instead of uh, the actor who plays Harvey. Who the fuck? Are you going to send me, like, looking at the cast roster? Mm-hmm. Harvey is the, is the coward captain. Oh, yeah. He could have played that guy. Yeah. But if he pulled up his shirt and showed you his belly, guess what color it would be? He has the most predictable Yellow. <laughs> We'd have to show you his back specifically, right? That'd be kind of that weird move where he lifts up the back of his shirt to show he's a... Oh, no. It's yellow belly. It's not yellow back. Yeah. Yellow Jesus back like a Christ. racial slur. I think you want to walk that back a little bit. Oh, my God. I don't want to be a homophobe. <laughs> you know, in movies when um, somebody shoots at somebody and the bullets go all around the, the silhouette of their body. Yeah, that's that's what you did to racism. <laughs> by, calling, by saying the word yellow. Here, here's what happened in my head. I'm like yellow. And then I said belly. And then as I converted that into a joke, I decided belly was on your back. <laughs> and it wasn't until I said the whole joke. And then pictured it in my head that I realized I was wrong. So, this is going to be 
Uh, a good app, I think. We'll just say I was staring at the sun in my sunroom. Put it to 3.1%. <laughs> do you think uh, Danny Boyle was sitting back, hanging out in his English cottage, and just being like, and someone was like, where'd you like your tea, dear? And he's like, he's like, in the fucking sunroom. <laughs> and then he's like, wait, what if there was an actual sunroom? <laughs> oh, uh, actually, here's here's my question about Danny Boyle. I think it's pretty important. Important. Oh, it's so important. Oh, important. Jesus Christ. <laughs> we should never record on a Monday. Mondays yeah. are bad recording days. We need that day to get back to work. Um, but here's my question about Danny Boyle. Do you think his nickname that he calls himself or other people call him is D-Boys? Second part to that question. <laughs> then when he sings the boys are back in town, do you think he thinks people are referring to him specifically? <laughs> the boys are back in town. Yeah, D-Boys, back in town. If you think about it, Trainspotting 2 is kind of like the song, Boys Are Back in Town. Yeah, Some of them are just stay in town. You just catch yeah. up with them 20 years later. The boys yeah, but are, like, the boys are still in town. Individual boy boy members of the train spotting gang uh, remained in town, but the 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 D boys capital Not T D capital boys. B. Okay, uh, it actually takes uh, all the members to come together to form the power the power unit of the boys, and that's different than D boys director of the yeah. boys in T <laughs> two train spotting. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he is he is D boys. I mean, it's nice that you walked your way right around set, calling him Danny Boy. Um, no, he's D boys. <laughs> D boys. Let me ask you another question. Do you like mm-hmm. Train Spotting? And do you mm-hmm. like Train Spotting too? They're both great. Yeah. Do you want to talk about Danny Boyle? I was only talking about sure, but I was only talking about the first movie. Just want to know if you liked it twice. <laughs> A little callback to Spooktober 2018. A joke only funny to us that got edited out probably quite a bit. Uh, Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Danny Boyle. So so I saw Trainspotting, and I liked it. And... Is it my turn yet? He seemed... (laughs) Shut the fuck up. He (laughs) seemed... uh, You know, I saw Trainspotting at the Perfect Age High School a couple years after it came out. And... I went back and watched some of his movies, and I got to tell you, it was a, a little bit until I found another one I really liked, but he he had a style that was so like, oh, this is cool, this is kinetic, this is something that I should like. Um, But then, like, you know, so I went back and watched Shallow Grave, which I know a lot of people love, uh, my friends that recommended it to me love, and I, I haven't seen it since I was in high school, but I didn't get much out of it. I thought it was kind of boring. I, I, while we're on Shallow Grave, which yeah. I don't think we're going to have much to say about it, uh, I I do appreciate that it introduced us to uh, Ewan McGregor and uh, Christopher Eccleston yeah. and Carrie Fox to some degree. And uh, But yeah, I kind of see it as like a following or a dark star. Like, it's a good movie to introduce you to the director, but like, I don't think it particularly st- Stands on its own legs, you know. Indefinitely. No, and it was it was something that like I really wanted to like because I liked dark comedies and I liked um, the kind of like treating death as this like um, macabre thing that is like a goofy thing that no one really has any morals about. Like there was, I know that sounds weird, but like 
it was I've talked about this before that there's a lot of I forget one movie we were talking about, which is a bad way to introduce this, but there is like especially when I was in high school, that idea of like the Last Supper, which is another dark comedy I remember, of treating like murder and death as an inconvenience as opposed to like something that, you know, is horrific, which it is in real life, but that from a comedy standpoint, Monty Python did that a lot. There was something very dangerous about that, especially uh, based on what I had grown up with. And so, I, I liked that idea of treating death as blasé as a, as a means for a comedic device. So, it felt like I should have liked Shallow Grave and I didn't. And, um, and then I saw Life Less Ordinary, uh, which was another movie that like this seems so cool and edgy. Why don't I like this at all? And I, I felt like I was wrong to not like it. And then I like forced myself to like the beach. Like I really convinced my – it was on like my first incarnation of the um, my top 100 movies of all time. And I really wanted to like it. And I did one of those things where I'm like, yeah, this is so cool. This is this uh, weird Lord of the Flies type movie. And I still remember it because I would show it to people a lot because I'd be like, this is great. You should watch this. And every time I watched it, I would find myself getting super bored and, like, think it was a problem with me. Like, oh, I must just not be in the mood for this. I don't know if you have examples of that. Like, movies you were convinced you loved that you didn't really like that much. Is that weird? Yeah, I think that's a big part about uh, being a a young film fan and not really knowing what you're looking for, but knowing, like, kind of deep in your subconscious what registers with you. Like, not being able to know consciously why you're not clicking with something, right? Yeah. And, like, thinking that you should like it. Yeah, you're like, well, this is part of this has been recommended to me and I, I th- this has been told uh, – I've been told that this is a good thing and I like good things. So, yeah. So, I just like – it wasn't until 28 Days Later that I felt like I'd finally seen another movie by him that I really loved. Um, and then I watched Millions, which I loved, loved, loved. I, I feel like that's a movie I've been meaning to see again. Uh, I saw Sunshine, which I thought was pretty good. We'll talk about how my uh, f- my feelings more on that in a sec. Uh, and then loved Slumdog when it came out. Loved 127 Hours. Um, loved Steve Jobs. And I loved T2. Uh, 127 Hours and Slumdog I haven't seen since they came out. I don't have as much of a – I don't have any burning desire to go back and see it. But I feel like he's made – for a director that I associate with good movies. And like when I hear his name, I get excited – He's only made a couple movies I really, really love. But you never know what he's going to fucking come up with is the, is the thing. So, like, I my story is basically, like, I watched Trainspotting in high school as well. Uh, I don't really like a hell of a lot of his movies, but I like seeing all of them because they're always yeah. this unique visual experience. Like, Trance is... I haven't is, seen Trance. That's the only Trance is seen. fucking horrible. Like, it's a terrible, terrible movie that's pretty regressive and full of a lot of, like, hokey bullshit. And uh, still, when I was watching it, I was having so much fun because he has all this these insane visual flourishes. And for being like this respectable capital D director, he wants to make like trashy small movies, too. Like, yeah, the fact that he's still interested in like 
you know, rougher filmmaking techniques. And he's not interested in making something that's like strictly beautiful, but it's also not strictly edgelordy um, is really interesting to me. And the fact and I think he is sort of a Tim Burton thing where I I think I, Tim Burton has a better track record, especially early on. Um. Tim Burton fell off a cliff. It's not a Tim. Yeah, Tim Burton fell off a cliff, whereas Danny Boyle did not fall off a cliff. He, no, he, he was he, really great. Um, he got stuck in between two rocks, let's say. Yeah, Frankenstein is supposed to be really great, too, as was uh, his. his uh, he did a stage adaptation of Frankenstein that people oh. like love. And you can you can see it somewhere on the Internet. I don't know where. And 127 Hours is really cool. 20 Days Later is one of my favorite movies. Uh, Millions is like a really charming movie. And I'm really glad that he made it. Like he's had a, a career filled with these iconic, wonderful works in all sorts of genres, all sorts of of modes. But he but he has a Tim Burton thing where. For some reason, even though I've been burned a lot of times, whenever a new Danny Boyle movie is coming out, I'm always like, I'm going to see that fucking thing. <laughs> I'm going to see it. See, I, I actually kind of disagree because Tim Burton at this point when he makes a movie, I, I just roll my eyes. And I haven't seen some of his recent ones. And I'm planning. You didn't to- get pumped when you saw the Miss Peregrine's Home for Particular no. Children? No. I got so pumped when I saw the trailer for that. I was like, he's, he's going back. He's figuring out what makes him, him, himself tick again. I know that I, I never want to write someone off and I'd be happy to be surprised. I've seen some good reviews for Dumbo and I'm planning to take Maya to it. I just I, – I honestly feel like he lost it. I think he was a weird outsider that made outsider movies. We've, we've talked about this in a couple episodes. And then once he kind of got everything he wanted and once the aesthetic of the world in some ways moved to him, he just lost that storytelling edge like he just i think he's i think for the most part i even rewatched sweeney todd which i had said was like his only good movie and i didn't like it at all i thought it was boring in that worst tim burton way where it's you're supposed to be wowed by the visuals but aren't like i danny boyle's different danny Boyle, i don't think has lost it i think danny boyle's thing for the most part i get he's i get really into the movies as i'm watching them like Steve Jobs, 127 Hours, Slumdog Millionaire are great examples of movies that I was fucking into. And then I'm done with the movie and I have no desire to see it again. Not because I didn't like it or give it four or five stars. It's just something about it is like, yeah, that was good for me. Like there, there's – the movies are so shallowly kinetic. Like they're so interesting to watch but like – I just feel like there's not as much to absorb, and so it doesn't leave you with any desire to see it again. So it's like, no, I saw it. Yeah, it was great. But, like, I don't want to sit through 127 hours again, and I don't have any desire to see Steve Jobs again. And there are exceptions to the rule. Um, 28 Days Later, great exception. I want to watch 28 Days Later literally once a year. Yeah, I love that movie. I could watch that again. I love 28 Weeks Later, which he only was the executive producer on. Yeah, Weeks Uh, is great, too. Um. And the uh, Train Spotting 2 was like, uh, I think it came out in 2016, I want to say, is like the most, was was one of the most emotionally touching movies for me of that year. There is something about watching a movie that you saw when you were slightly younger than the characters uh, and then watching, like, I was, you know, whatever. I saw it when I was 17 in 1990, whatever, 1999, 2000. And then, so basically, it felt like now I was in my 
they're in their 40s. I'm in my mid-30s or early 30s at the time. And, like, so that kind of, like, resonance of seeing these people that you that you saw when you were young now dealing with uh, being older in their middle ages and stuff like that. Like, God, I love that movie. And I still love Trainspotting. Um, those are such good movies. There, it's weird. Trainspotting is, like, is very similar to um, other legacy let's get the band back together movies of recent times where I've been like, wait, why is this good? <laughs> this had all of the all of yeah. the signs of being cursed. But, yeah, and it was really good. It actually is sort of like uh, one that even hit closer to home, like not it's a terrible movie, but uh, like just from an age bracket is that like the American Pie movies came out when I was in high school and then like when they were in college, I was in college. Uh, and then when they had American Wedding, it was in a, when a couple of my friends started getting married because they were done with college. And then, like, literally they came out with American Reunion, which is a terrible fucking movie. But it happened – I think that takes place at their 10-year high school reunion. It was, like, the same year as my 10 – like, it was one of those weird things where the movie was terrible. Or maybe it was their 15-year high school reunion. I felt like they were a little older. The movie itself is terrible, but I'm like the the button pushing nostalgia stuff that they hit in there just resonated with me because I was the exact age as as all of them through this sh- this journey that was probably really bad to begin with and just got progressively shittier. I like saying that nostalgia resonates with you because it is weirdly like a tuning fork situation where you can't you can't quite help it. That like it's resonating. Like it doesn't even have to be a nostalgia for something good. You could just be like, yeah, like yeah. I remember, uh, remember fucking Sugar Ray, and then you'll hear like eight seconds of a Sugar Ray song. You're like, yeah, this registers with me. It doesn't. Mean... And then you, and then your next reaction is, is this good or not? The the first reaction is like you get you get the vibration. They like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is just it was seeing like people who were the same age as me that I had also like. It was like being in a movie high school reunion or like having a, a high school reunion with a movie series that you still really like. It, it was it was bizarre how much like that movie did not make me laugh. It was not good. But like I kept getting kind of choked up because I like just recognized so much uh, from my own life and the characters of how much they'd aged and grown up, even if it was definitely not a one to one comparison. But I think you're right. Like I always think of um, – uh, the this is such a weirdly specific example, but uh, the Seinfeld clip show that aired right before the finale. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, I probably skipped it when I was rewatching Seinfeld. I probably saw it was a clip show and I was like, I'm good. So it's actually a very well put together clip show. And so usually when I go through the series, which I do once every couple of years, I still watch it. But it ends with the most 1998 like touching montage that got a lot of shit in even the documentary that came with the DVDs because it like all of a sudden got super sentimental for the end of the show and a show that was very uh, historically known as a movie that was about no or a show about no hugging, no learning. Yeah. And has a montage of like happy moments and behind the scenes with the cast and uh, the, the actors hugging, not the characters and stuff like that set to like green days time of your life. (laughs) (laughs) So, I can't think of anything that, in theory, should not evoke any emotion with me. One, it is a show that I have grappled with being off the air because I really didn't even get into it too much until it was off the air. So, at no point, like, you know, this at, at this point, it's 20 years ago. I know Seinfeld is not on TV. 
And I always fucking hated Time of Your Life. Like, even when I liked Green Day, I fucking hated that song. So that combined with a song that I hate and then doing this thing that's kind of antithetical to the show itself. Like, it has three factors working against me. The only factor working for it is this idea of endings and nostalgia. And it makes me cry every time. Yeah. And I mean, that's also that also happens with stuff like the office finale, I think is a failure of the care. It fails the characters um, and it fails what the show has been building up to. It kind of it's the only the really great part about it is it transitions us into Parks and Rec and that sort of sweetness. Um, But this is what the office had started as and what the office became were both not existent in the finale. It's just like this. Time of your life might as well have played. Yeah. yeah. And like there is a part where uh, Creed Bratton plays a really like charming song that's like basically like a cool folky version of Time of Your Life. But the yeah. episode still chokes me up and still makes me feel like I, I watch something worthwhile and it resonates with me because I'm also saying goodbye to these characters. Like, yeah. It, it Even though I think like the characters died a season or two earlier, like who they actually were. Yeah. Um, but so it, it is like watching the actors say goodbye to each other and you can feel actual human humanity. Through exactly. That. And, and like, I can go back to a time in like the Seinfeld example where I'm like, yep, instead of uh, this is it and getting choked up, I'm like, yep, this was it. This is the last, <laughs> like, which is so bizarre, but it it's just very effectively, Done. D- Danny Boyle is a is a like a, a, an experimenter, an experimenter to the core. And what I think Sunshine is is a, especially judging by the fact that he has done television in recent years, like a lot of directors. He did stage stuff at, at a part in his career where he really didn't have to. He, he also did, didn't direct the James Bond movie. Yeah, he basically like got people. kicked off of the James Bond series because they were he like just kept pitching stuff that was out kind of out there. What if he's um, on like an episode of Wheel of Fortune, but he knows <laughs> all the spins because I, I, of all his stuff with uh, with Spectre? <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't he be? That would be still like the fifth dumbest Bond movie. That would be great though if like he is the whole thing with him Wheel of Fortune. And he, he keeps flashing back to all the times he's beaten Spectre. And at the end, the answer to the puzzle is Spectre. And that's how he gets it. It's like, solve the puzzle. <laughs> he's Spectre. like, a crummy commercial? Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I'll take an S. And then it flashes back. <laughs> <laughs> we'll call it James Bond in the Wheel of Doom. Um. So, uh, yeah, but he's a he's Danny Boyle is a big experimenter. And I think this is where he started to lean into uh, messing with his editing and uh, uh, strange camera movements and really trying to break the traditional forms of how you you view film in a a visual language sense. And I don't think he necessarily did that, but he did implement a lot of sort of uh, experimental, even like music video techniques into film. And a lot of stuff that it seems like crazy to us and super impressionistic is kind of standardized because of guys like Danny Boyle, who were like dragging that music video aesthetic into respectable, in quotes, film. 
So I was really looking forward to rewatching Sunshine. It was one of those movies that I've thought so many times in the last 12 years that, oh, fuck, I got to rewatch Sunshine one of these days. It's, you know, it stayed with me. And I really liked it when I saw it. Uh, but I had it, like, rated, like, four stars. Like, I thought it was really good. And I'll tell you what. I got a little bogged down the first time I saw it is that I kind of knew there was going to be a twist into horror. Not because of spoilers, but just, like, from the trailers and everything. And I was kind of wondering what the twist weird thing was going to be. Uh, and sometimes when you're wondering that throughout the movie, it can take you out of the movie itself. And then once it got to the the kind of twist where you find out that there's this person that's alive that's sabotaging uh stuff on the ship it reminded me a lot of event horizon like a lot of event horizon at the time and it felt unsatisfying that it didn't go as far as event horizon weirdly enough like it was like oh they ripped it off with just the crazy guy but I was kind of psyched. I, I, I was hoping they'd go to some Danny Boyle Hell Dimension or weird, trippy 2001 stuff or uh, uh, or something like that. And so I remember being a little disappointed by what I was expecting in my head. So I was like, really good. Not great. Now, this was the first time I had watched it since then. Uh, and I got to say, Peter, I was wrong. It is great. I'm glad that you and I are on the same page this week because I felt the same way. I remember I remember being like, it's a compromise classic when I, I watched it, whatever, 10, 12 years ago. And then I probably watched it like, uh, you know, a year or two after that. And then I've been waiting and waiting and waiting to find an excuse to rewatch it. Uh, and then I returned to it and it all pieces together in a way that I didn't see the first time. I remembered the Agreed. twist. Yeah. I remember the twist, but I remember I don't remember them grounding the twist so well. No, I, I, I don't either. This... I thought it was like a hell dimension too. I don't know. Like, I thought it was a hell dimension that you didn't get to see. Like, I thought there was something supernatural about it. And that was unsatisfying. With It felt like it didn't go far enough. Or it shouldn't have gone supernatural. And, like, I, I missed that completely. That it wasn't that at all. And that how well they set it up for who he was. And, like, I feel like I just... I just missed, like, this is a movie that benefited from a rewatch in a way I wasn't expecting. I was like, yeah, oh, I had some stuff or impressions wrong about this, and it's so fucking well done, and the last 20 minutes is not a ripoff of Event Horizon, uh, and it, it's doing the horror stuff. Like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm psyched to talk about this. I, bu- I bumped it up to five stars, Peter. This is fucking great. I was expecting to like it a little bit less because I think at the time I was very swept up in Danny Boyle love. Like, what? It's follow up to 28 days later, essentially, right? Yeah, he hadn't, he hadn't yet punched me in the face with stuff like trance. I ended up realizing some stuff about myself in this revisit where I was like, oh. I actually care a lot less about plot holes and whether or not something is scientific uh, than I did when I was 16 or whenever the fuck I watched this last. I And also, I think I'm just a more observant film watcher, whereas like when I was 15, I probably would have just let a lot of this stuff pass me by. Yeah. And I think that a lot of us 
probably in the past whatever 12 years have uh grown to be more observant and have hopefully like grown more open-minded towards movies so like i highly recommend people revisit this um but you want to get past the the spoiler wall for this uh aaron yeah so much like the first time i watched it i was so hyped for it to get to the weird and or horror shit for you listeners that are hyped for us to get to the movie shit it's about to happen yeah (laughs) <laughs> Let's get to the movie shit. Let's get to the movie shit. You want to talk about sunshine? Let's talk about sunshine and not lollipops and very specifically not rainbows. Yeah. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. In this song, I'm talking about the literal song. <laughs> Ain't no sunshine when there's no sun. <laughs> Ain't no sunshine when the sun goes away. <laughs> are there any good global warming songs uh didn't one win an academy award whatever was in an in inconvenient truth jai ho yep that's the one <laughs> oh. i'm oh, trying to think been... if there would be a good a good sunshine song when the world was dying because the sun was dying i'm trying to think if there'd be a good like a uh, song back on earth or everyone would be like on the tap you know tapping their toes and being like Gotta get that sun restarted with a nuclear bomb, baby. <laughs> I think it's probably it's uh, Nelly's hot in here. <laughs> it's getting hot in here. We're all gonna die. I am getting so hot. We gotta destroy our infrastructure. It's <laughs> pretty good stuff. Yeah. Do you want to talk about sunshine? Yeah, please. Taglines. Uh, ain't no sunshine when she. God damn it! No. <laughs> Did you want to see the basic concept of Armageddon? But if they fast forwarded the first seventy-five percent, <laughs> made into a whole movie, you got it. This is sort of hipster Armageddon. I like that they skip all the like discovering the shit and assembling the team of scientists and all their personal interpersonal conflict and training and they're just like yep they're almost at the sun and the sun is going out and that's what you need to know it is true i saw in a review someone complaining about killian murphy being underdeveloped and i was like i kind of like that he's more relatable because they didn't give him some epic ass backstory he's just like a dude who doesn't want the sun to die yeah i i feel like you get to know the characters all relatively well yeah through their actions on the ship yeah, but you're not supposed to. Like, this is not – this is – they have the one scene with uh, Killian Murphy talking, like, recording a message. But, like, you basically don't even have, like, the someone looks at the picture of their kids wistfully moment. Like, I like that about it. <laughs> In fact, uh, there's a plot point of Killian Murphy and Chris Evans getting into a fight because Chris Evans doesn't get to do that. He's so, like, I wanted to have my sappy sentimental moment. I wanted to have my interstellar speech. He's really in teenage dirtbag mode, and I love it until they make him shave. But anyway, uh, yeah, so the plot of Sunshine is, as we kind of allude to, uh, the sun is burning out. It's going away. 
uh, won't be able to support life. And uh, they there was already a ship that went, lost contact. Not like a Van Horizon at all. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> so the new ship is going to to uh, blast the payload of this super nuclear thing blast that stops time and space and will reignite. The technical the, word is sun blaster. Yeah, the, they're going to blast the sun with the sun blaster. It's going to get blast <laughs> all over its the f- surface of the sun and then work again. Yeah, um, it, it'll be a, it's a bad sun now. And when they're sun. done, it's going to be a good sun. Yeah, they don't want it to become a black hole sun, even though some people like Pinbacker do want it to wash it all away. Um, so, yeah, so they're like, all right, we're almost there. Things are going pretty well. We're about to go into the dark zone where we can't communicate with Earth. People say goodbye. You get to know kind of the ship. They have a, they, they plan to be out there for like three years. Takes a while to get. It's 2057. Takes a while to get there, but you see they have like plants for oxygen. They got a little good little community going. You get to know the captain, the doctor, the the communications officer, Killian Murphy, who invented the fucking thing. Don't don't know why he didn't go on the first ship, but he did. He had a thing. He had a thing. Uh, he yeah, it was his sister's kid uh, bar mitzvah. <laughs> Couldn't miss it. <laughs> Couldn't um, miss it. And uh, so, and there's a big solar shield which allows them to get close to the sun without burning up. So they really are going to get there. They're going to blast it off. They're going to go back home. And, and and he says to his sister, "If you you see a particularly bright day on this day, it means it worked. If not, <laughs> we're all going to die." Um, so hope it's not cloudy that day, or it could really cause a momentary freakout. Um, then they get a message from the first ship, and they're like, should we go investigate? And everyone's like, that's a terrible idea. Who cares about these people? We need to go uh, reignite the sun. Uh, and then the doctor uh, is like, well, hold on. Who cares? I agree. Who cares about those people? But you can tell he kind of cares about those people. He's like, but they have another payload. So if we can get that, pilot the ship, fix it. He's Killian Murphy saying we only have 50% shots. So this gives us two 50% shots to uh, to to do it. So uh, they let Killian Murphy decide. He's like, yeah, no, it's a good point. So they go there, uh, immediately run into issues in that when they turn the ship, they forgot to rotate the shield. So that sends a couple people, including the captain, out on a repair mission, Killian Murphy and the captain. The captain uh, they repairs the solar panels but dies. Uh, with the sunlight washing over them. Oh, we'll talk about how, how well the sun is used, but I feel like that's a probably a big chunk that I don't want to devote to the plot and how some people are get obsessed with the sun. Uh, so anyways, we'll, we'll get to that. The ship ends up being uh, everyone dead. The captain of that ship, Ledbetter, Pinbacker. Pinbacker. Uh, <laughs> uh, Lily Ledbetter. Lily Ledbetter. Uh, Yellow Ledbetter, the, the classic Pearl Jam song. Yeah, uh, Yellow Ledbetter. Yeah, you find out that he kind of went crazy and decided that, hey, if God wants to burn out the sun, who are we to reignite it? Uh, unclear whether he killed the crew. It feels like he did. But regardless, they find all of their bodies in the sun room having been uh, turned to ash by the sun. And as he repeats, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So while they're over on this ship, uh, the airlock gets severed. They can't get back. Uh, so they end up having to do some things that results in the death of the helmsman. Meanwhile, the, uh, the, 
the plant sanctuary gets destroyed um, as part of this whole mission thing. So now they're like, great, a bunch of people are dead, but hey, at least we have enough oxygen to actually make it to the sun, but we're all going to die and not make it home. And then the computer's like, you don't, there's a fifth person. And uh, when they get there, they see um, Pinbacker, who has been doing nothing but sitting in the sun up to his threshold. So his entire body is uh, sunburned isn't even the right word. Uh, uh, Cooked. His entire body's cooked, Peter. Uh, Hot dogified. So then he kind of goes on a killing rampage because he's trying to stop the sun. It all ends with with Killian Murphy, Rose Byrne. And they are uh, are fighting him in the core. And finally, Killian Murphy goes, ignites the the switch, saves the world, gets to see really close-up sunbeams as it happens. And then you see his sister and her kids playing outside and the sky lights up. And that was the end of the movie. Yeah. And the uh, reason why that was a very unsatisfying plot recap is because... Uh, this is uh, this is a movie very much about Bing Bang Boom, but it's how stylized and how well I, th- I feel like this may be the movie where we talk about uh, the way it's edited and directed more than most movies we talk about. Because the way that it tells stories is kind of more interesting than the story itself, though. I really like the structure of the story. It's really well structured. It's it's written by. Alex, Alex Garland. Garland. Who did 28 Days Later. Um, he did Never Let Me Go. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for Dread, which is awesome. He wrote the screenplay and directed Ex Machina and Annihilation. And He's he also, for, on the video game side, Aaron, do you know what he wrote? Yeah. Sonic and Knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> it, Knuckles was his idea. He's like... Yeah. I'm a pretty cool dude. I write cool screenplays. What if we had Sonic, who seems pretty cool, but like a cooler Sonic? And they're like, what do you name him? After my fist. <laughs> he's like, he's he's an echidna. He's a what? He's an echidna. <laughs> Is Alex Garland from that plate in Boston? Yeah. <laughs> he wrote your favorite, uh, favorite video game of all time. Dark Souls? Uh, DMC. Oh, yeah, that movie, that game rules. Yeah, the, that game the rules. Devil it's, May Cry. It's getting a lot of short shrift right now because there's a new Devil May Cry out that people like, but the game does rule. But uh, the game rules, uh, despite its writing, it is terribly written. The dialogue makes me cringe. Uh, a ton of fun to play. So don't write video games. He wrote the book that The Beach is based on, but not the screenplay. Interesting. Um, Maybe so he could have made it good. Yeah, and uh, he was, for a very short period of time, Danny Boyle's kind of guy. And then he's like, sir, I'd like to make a movie, too. (laughs) A movie? I'm the movie man here. (laughs) Get back to your typewriter. Oh, oh yes, sir. Maybe someday you'll you'll make uh, the worst movie on my CV. (laughs) Sir, sir, I have a MacBook Pro. We're taking it. (laughs) Sir, this typewriter has been oiled in a while. Use the chisel and the hammer to punch the keys. (laughs) You did get a hammer for lunch? (laughs) You couldn't eat it, could you? It was for the typewriter. Before Maggie Thatcher, we had a hammer for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now, excuse me, I'm going to cast Steth Rogen in this Steve Jobs movie. (laughs) And it's going to be the best decision I've ever made, casting-wise. Inexplicably. (laughs) 
yeah, his experimentalism uh, really peaked at casting Seth Rogen in that movie. He's so good at it, though. Yeah. It's a good Wozniak. It is a good... Uh, uh, but yeah, so uh, Alex Garland is is a, a very plot heavy, structured uh, scriptwriter, um, and he is very much focused on that sort of uh, sparse nut, nuts and bolts sparseness, and it's very much about like the mechanics of how we're getting from A to B. He's very concerned with the practicalities of how everything works, and his movies tend to be fairly sound in terms of logic, and then the the. Uh, the stereotype about him is that in the third act, everything falls apart and some crazy shit happens. And I'm like, that's that's every movie. I don't know if you know that. The, yeah. the end of every movie is when well, all the shit comes together. And I think what I missed here, we can. I, I don't care if we talk about that first. I think what I missed the first time is how uh, how well it's all set up. It's set up in little bits and pieces. The The recording that they find from him... Uh, that they flash back to uh, the the visual thing of like the fact that uh, the the first ship is full of dust and they're like, um, yeah, well, most dust is human skin. How would it get dusty here? Like, this is weird that there's everything is covered in dust. And as we find out, it is human skin and bones and flesh and organs and all that kind of stuff. And I think I do like the idea of this captain going crazy in a way that we haven't seen. Maybe he was always crazy. Maybe he was, a, you know, a religious lunatic, because I'm sure if the sun did start to go out, there would be there'd be a huge sect, apparent probably of people uh, that don't believe the sun is going out. That's very important, or uh, believe it's a good thing. And then people, yeah, people that believe it's a good thing, and and, and sun worship is one of our most primal, basic uh, impulses as a, as a species. Like worshiping the sun was is part of so many of the early man's cultures. Yeah, and it, and so I can see like, hey, the sun wasn't supposed to go out for a couple billion years. It's going out now. I guess it's our time to 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 be turned to dust. And and I like the idea of of that being acted out um, as like some kind of religious zealot who then, of course, like a lot of great horror religious zealots like. Uh, follows what he what he preaches like he follows the insane religion he preaches where he is letting himself slowly turn to dust by uh, taking the immense pain of having his flesh burnt and reburnt through to the core to the point that like I love the visual flair that Danny Boyle does uh, both for practical reasons and for stylistic reasons I think uh, so the first time I saw so every time you see Mark Strong as um, as pinbacker, it's like out of focus. Like he can be in frame, but it's like the camera is shaking, and other people that aren't that are in the same frame with him aren't shaking that same way. It's like he's putting off radiation that is physically messing with the, people's the camera or the hard drive yeah. in like a a metatextual sense, and then yeah, in a, in a literal sense, uh, messing with people's vision. Like it's kind of a cool halfway point between the Jaws thing, where you don't see the you know the shark at all, yeah, and then a. Um, and then, like, a, you know, a werewolf movie or something where you really want to fucking see that werewolf out, out running yeah. around. It's sort of a halfway point where he's on he's on screen, but he's not really on screen. And I, I think it um, – so the first time I saw it, I thought he was literally emitting that radiation. 
Um, and so that's why I thought there was a more supernatural element that didn't really jive with how scientific and precise uh, the rest of the movie is, which we'll talk about. This time seeing it, I have a different takeaway. I think it is stylistic. I don't think the characters are um, are seeing that type of like visual uh, discombobulation. I think that that is uh, stylistically supposed to represent how uh, unknowably uh, – like how they're seeing something they've never seen before and it's hard to look at because it is so grotesque. And so I think that's what it's supposed to represent stylistically. And then I also think it works really well as a practical level in that um, it would probably be very hard to depict that well visually in a way that doesn't just look like uh, Sam Neill from the event, the end of Event Horizon or something. So implying what he must look like by doing that is very well to make the audience – does does a really good job of making the audience like try to imagine what that much sun exposure at that close distance would, would look like from a gross perspective. And then the one time they cut it out is when he has flesh like easily ripped from his bone like a cooked – turkey or something like that uh and then we get to see it very clearly in that moment and that like that works well to only only justify how gross we've been imagining it could be in our minds i think that's a good i think that's a good take i think that um the distortion of both their terror because this is a horror movie and also the the uh immense amount of pressure on they're under uh both and uh, both um literally like they are in a spaceship and traversing from, you know, parts of the ship to another part of the ship. Or um, even at the end of the movie, when Killian Murphy has to go into the vacuum of space to finish the the film um, and blow up the, the massive nuclear weapon, all the pressure they're under and all that, it seems to have an effect on the film itself. Like it's, it's Danny Boyle taking impressionism to a, to your face it's not it's not an unreliable narrator where you, where he might be bending he or she might be bending the story in sort of subtle ways that you're not noticing you know like a liar Danny Boyle is like <laughs> is taking impressionism and being like this is how they're experiencing the event and there's there's stuff in the finale that is I'm sure is controversial um, where that fight where there's there's uh, freeze frames yeah, and it seems like frames are missing, or um, the, the the blurring effect gets really wild, and like it's it's kind of hard to tell what's happening literally in the fight. It's more about like what's happening to your brain during this this fight. Well, and also they're hur- they're also hurling towards the sun during this. So I think that's where I I missed it the first time. That I really thought that this was like. <sighs> literally happening and i and it felt weird that they were um moving to like a a supernatural element and And now and now i understand that it's not that it is truly it is supposed to you're right like distort the vision and make you feel like you're ungrounded in a way to make you experience the chaos that is occurring the real world chaos that is occurring from the character's point of view so I think it's impressionistic and it works so insanely well that I didn't even get it the first time that that's what it's supposed to be. I do I do appreciate that a lot of people don't like this movie and I uh, think that it somehow wasted its promise or whatever. My dad has some sort of surgery, I guess, 10 years ago and he basically needed to be on the couch all day but not working because I think he was on pain meds or whatever um, or he was just, you know, 
not supposed to be working. And I gave him a stack of movies and he watched through all of them, which was cool because like he's usually too busy to do stuff like that. And one of them was Sunshine. I can be useful. <laughs> and he's a big sci-fi dork. Like he okay. loves space stuff and like he loves anything really about like what the future of man could be. And like he's also a physics dork. So he kind of understands like the, 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 the nitty gritty of it. Mm-hmm. Um but not in a Neil deGrasse Tyson way where he's preachy about it. Uh, but, you know, and, and I showed him this movie and he was like, it was really cool. It was like a really awesome sci-fi movie. Like they don't make movies like this anymore, which, you know, a few years later they'd have Interstellar and, and uh, Gravity. Gravity and such. But he was like, they don't really make movies like that, that, that anymore. It's really great. And uh, he was like, then uh, I don't really like at the end of the movie when it just turns into a Freddy Krueger movie, though. <laughs> And it's like, this is true. He's being ch- chased by a hot dog man who's smashing him up. But Well, and again, that's why, like, I, even though I really liked Event Horizon, uh, especially in 2007, more than I do now, I was like, I don't need another half-ass Event Horizon. This is, this, why would they go here? I just don't think I got it. Um, also, side note, um, my favorite example ever of me giving my dad his favorite genre to watch only for him to go, uh, what the fuck was that, essentially, at the end? <laughs> so you showed um, it to your dad, too? No, I didn't show this, but, like, it's for some reason I've been thinking a lot about this, so I might as well say it on the podcast, about, like, my favorite reaction ever to showing someone a movie, which was when I watched Inglorious Bastards with my dad. Um, his favorite, like, favorite, favorite genre is True Stories. And then his above that favorite genre is true stories based on World War II movies. Of course. So he's like – Classic he's, dad. He's like dad prime. Classic dad. Um, and we were watching it, me and my brother. He's the most he, basic boiled down version of exactly, what a dad he's is. Ster- stereotypical dad. Um, so he – we I, but it's not like I was like, here, you should watch this. We were watching this. Uh, and he was super into it. Like – until the ending where they kill Hitler and you realize I think he was expecting this to be like one of the many untold true stories of crazy things that happened in World War II uh, understandably and uh, and yeah and then at the end he I still just remember him like just you could tell how like he was starting to I don't know if dislike the movie is the right word but just like Oh, this is dumb now. I hate this. And at the end, he didn't even say anything to us. He's like, well, shook his head and said, I'm going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> so he wants movies to be literally true. I Yeah. He, well, he understands like they stretch facts and stuff like that. But it was just like he got he got nothing out of it before. You ever if your dad ever watches a movie and walks away feeling disappointed in reality. <laughs> Like that, that this movie could exist and there was an audience for it and his kids seemed to like it. Uh, that, that's how, that was the feeling. <laughs> but like, also like bemusement, like, I think that was probably the oldest he's ever felt in his life. Oh, yeah. Kids these days always wanting to see Hitler get shot. Yeah. Hitler shot himself. I was kind of hoping he would turn to us and go, you know, that's not what happened. Like, I was hoping he would dad explain to us. That's the other stereotypical dad thing. You need to show your knowledge of historical events. The space stuff didn't really make sense to me. Like that stuff. Um, yeah. That's when my dad's uh, dad splaining gets real strong. Yeah. I find but it you- really charming though when my dad like gets re- gets like a little lost in thought where he's like, 
yeah, but that's not really how the gravitational pull of the Earth works. And, you know, the, like, I remember him t- telling me stuff like that. And then, like, a week later, Neil deGrasse Tyson had a video about gravity and me, and me being like, oh, OK, got it. There's like a there's like a type of person that watches these movies that needs to this needs to make literal sense. I, I think last week or no, two weeks ago, I you're talking about the the blowing uh what happens when you go into space. Yes, I was talking about that. And I included it less for this sort of like, uh, you know, realistic equals good thing. Uh, And more for the sense that like, I was just curious, like, which of these is actually realistic? And weirdly enough, Event Horizon might be a little closer to the truth, Um, though. They're pretty close. I I feel like not only are they close, again, I don't think Alec Garland was like copying or even thinking of Event Horizon, but it's kind of funny. There's a scene where they have to go across an airlock without spacesuits because the airlock has been ripped off by sabotage of a lunatic. Do you think that? But but gravity was super creative with what was happening to make her have to get out of one spacesuit into another, or one space module into another. Like gravity, was it felt like it was just like. Uh, spur of the moment, what could go wrong is going to go wrong kind of thing. Yeah. When you're doing a space movie, there's like only so much. That, like, There's only so many okay, situations. Sure, but like, let's let's just, hold on, hold on. Kill, everything in space kills you. Let's, so, like, just, let's just frame this up though. Like, you're right. That is true. Like, the getting out of the airlock is not just specific to Event Horizon Sunshine. But let's just talk about, and again, I don't even think I realized how close it was. Um, plot like bullet point plot wise it is very close like it is about uh, one ship going on a rescue mission of the other that has mysteriously so Aaron, when, dis- when one ship loves another ship very yeah. much and the second one inexplicably has the inventor yes. uh, where he wasn't on the first ship then they get a distress call with a weird religious subtext message of a guy who's kind of out of focus then they decide to go rescue him only to find that there is, like, now an evil presence and, like, the crew died through this, like, horrific means. Then the lunatic religious person whose body is all bloodied and maimed gets on the other ships and starts sabotaging it as they slowly figure it out. And then there's, like, a showdown where they have to, uh, as one, start the gravity drive and then the other one uh, have start the thing to go. Like, it, it, like... Plot by plot, it's hitting a lot of the same points, even if everything else after that is uh, is very different. Make a artistic, respectable, and way better version of uh, a trashy uh, thing that people don't really like. Yeah. Like, Under the Skin is sort of a remake of Species. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. And I, But I, I would like, like, there is a part of me that goes, did Alec Garland, like, subconsciously remember this movie as he was writing it and like put in a couple notes is it truly just parallel thinking of like thinking of some some plot things that ended up being the same or c is it what you said like the bones of this are good i'm gonna do something different with it and also i'd love to know because it's it feels like it could be a or c very easily I agree. And it gets more suspicious when we started planning this month. We were like, I want horror movies to take place in space, not on an alien planet, not uh, on Earth with aliens invading. I mean, in space on a ship. And that chopped the list down a lot. Kind of insanely to the point that there's like there is four. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> like, there's not that many. We decided between Hellraiser, Leprechaun in Space, and Jason X, we were going to do Jason X because yeah. Jason X had the greatest capacity to be interesting, and I think we were right. A lot of people stick up for Leprechaun from Space, which I have not seen, but say it's a blast. Yeah, I, I don't remember liking any of the latter Leprechaun movies, except for that Warwick Davis is very great. Um, and... The list gets so small, so that makes it more conspicuous, I think, because the list is so small. Because you're like, well, what movies are like this? Uh... Yeah, it's not like it's not like someone's doing the 18th millionth ripoff of Jaws and is like, well, yeah, but like those are the beats to the story. Yeah, Th- yeah this yeah. is this is this hits so many of the same points. There's just yeah, there's not that many movies of space horror that this could have been taken of. Not saying it even as a bad way, like you said, Peter. Like I like the idea of take the framework of something, and like this movie is much better directed. It's it's concerned with more interesting things. It doesn't have the supernatural element, but yeah, Alec, like write in, please, if you're listening. Just just let us know, like. Did you have it in mind? Looking back, do you see the similarities? It is weird. But it does make this more interesting in comparison this month because the idea of going out in space is inherently terrifying because if one thing goes wrong, like, uh, was it the Challenger? What was the ship that blew up in the 2000s? Like 2003 or something? Oh, I forget. uh, Challenger was 86. Oh, yeah. What was the one that blew up in the mid-2000s? I want to say Discovery? Discovery, maybe. It was literally the only thing that was wrong with it was that a single panel of the the the, uh, the the exterior of the ship didn't function properly. It didn't keep heat out, and once and once the the heat and the flames of the atmosphere got in, or you know, from the jets. I don't remember if it's from the atmosphere. I think it was from the just the the, the actual. Um, the jets getting heat inside the ship, which is an all oxygen environment, and it just fucking explodes, right? Like all it took. Well, was, that like, kind of sounds similar fuck- too to the problem in this movie. <laughs> yeah, th- all it takes is like one weird little thing going wrong. That is, you know, you look at the ship, you run your hands over it, you wouldn't even notice that there was a problem. This was these were some of the smartest minds the country and the world has ever produced, and then. One tiny little mistake caused the the lives of all these people and all this money and all this shit. Just like this immense loss and this immense punch to the nation being like, do we want to keep going to fucking space? And then we we talk about that for years, right? Like, yeah. do we want to keep fucking going to space? Like, like, I don't know, a significant portion of the time this rocket blows up. And you're right that like any... Anything can go wrong. There's a point in this movie. The movie actually becomes a horror movie about 50 minutes in. People say it's like a third act thing. But as soon as they board the Icarus 1, it becomes a yeah. horror movie. And at that point, when you if you haven't seen it yet, your your brain has to, if you're especially if you're us, your brain has to be racing. Is this a, a dumb computer error that killed all of them? Just like, you know, the oxygen didn't work. The oxygen didn't process correctly, whatever. Uh, was this sabotaged by someone on board? Which is obviously what it ends up being happening. Uh, was it aliens? Is this an alien movie? Or did aliens try and kill our son to kill us and they're trying to make sure the plan goes through? Uh, was it an evil AI? Like, hell. They even apply in one part of the movie. They're like, unless... Uh, what's the name of the AI? Mother? Something yeah. like that? <laughs> it's Mother it's and alien. alien, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, Big Mama... Uh, and in Big Mama's house, they're like, uh, so did, did, maybe she was deleting her records. Like, they kind of imply that it's a killer, 
like almost a red herring like it was a killer ai that's why i love about this movie they make it scary enough and epic enough and the stakes are high enough and then also 50 minutes in you're like guess what it's also a horror movie you mentioned um how well this does it like the the process components and like and how scary it is because these little things that can go wrong. And I do think that's what makes the first 50 minutes of this movie so compelling. Uh, it is a really good example of like very smart people being very good at their jobs. And the reason why um, these space movies are so compelling, they're hard to make, which is one of the reasons we don't get that many. But like there is a reason why Apollo 13 was made before First Man by like 23 years. You know, it's because from a dramatic standpoint, things going wrong in this this environment where they have no um, no assistance, every tiny thing is an emergency that could kill them, like is very dramatically compelling. That's what gravity was. And that's what the first 50 minutes of this movie are like. Uh, I love the moment where they kind of talk about how they think a little tiny asteroid storm hitting the back of the ship away from the shield may have uh, broken the first one, the Icarus one. And, uh, and then when they go out to repair the space shield, you see a little meteor, just, just one quick one in the front. But at this point, the movie is doing so much stuff with light and flashes, and then you don't see any more. You're kind of like, oh, maybe that wasn't a meteor or maybe it was just cool background stuff. And then you see another tiny one about five minutes later where they're going through their process stuff. And then you finally realize like, oh, shit. No, this is a li- this is the little meteor storm type thing they foreshadowed. And you realize immediately what a nightmare that is. Like these little tiny pebbles, if they're hitting the wrong side of the ship, can do stuff like blow up their entire fucking garden. Because – and then they – how can they do stuff? Like, uh, you know, these movies that, that do this are, are almost uniformly good. Like The Martian's another one. Just because they – People are just obsessed with how little things can go wrong, and that that makes it both it make it allows them to have the tiniest of problems, like three heat cells on their solar shield going out being this thing with amazing dramatic heft and stakes just because of where you're at. There is a lot of dramatic heft in all of the the space stuff that is so relatable. Because, like, you understand the stakes within eight seconds of Killian Murphy telling you the plot of the movie. I love that the plot is not so hard to understand that you need it to be constantly re-explained to you. Killian Murphy explains the plot in... The first 90 seconds. It, it, it takes, like, less time than the first paragraph in the Dune opening title. <laughs> You know, in the opening. <laughs> and they don't have to come back because they forgot shit. Yeah. It basically is just like, we're going to the sun. We're going to drop this bomb off. And then on the way there, they're like, there, there's some complications getting to the sun. And then they're like, all right, there's some complications dropping the bomb off. Like, there's not that much. There's not that much shit to, to deal with. And so it really helps you focus on the drama and the scene where. Um, so let's talk about the cast real quick. Yeah. The cast is amazing. There's literally only really one. Good. One person in the cast that I am not familiar with. 
the communications guy. Yeah, the, the communications guy that becomes the that becomes the captain after Kaneda dies, and he's his name's Harvey. Do you think it's confusing that he keeps saying he is the captain, and then everyone's like, "No, but we have to save Cap, who is Killian Murphy Murphy's name." Yeah, Captain. <laughs> his name is Cap. Like, no, we gotta save Cap, but I'm the captain. What? Do you think that if your last name was Captain, they wouldn't let you enlist in the army unless you went officer school? Captain, Captain. Yeah. Let's let's look it up. Let's stop the podcast. Get out the uh, the, the whatever thing they used in old libraries. What was that called? The microfilm? Yeah, the microfiche. <laughs> the microfiche. And yeah, let's, let's find example. Let's go through every record of everyone who's ever graduated from West Point. Start let's see there. if there was a Captain Captain. Then we're going to go to enlisting. <laughs> and then other countries. Let's die doing it. Yeah. We got Shaggy Dog Chris Evans, who yeah. becomes skinhead Chris Evans. This is uh, this is pre-Chris Evans being huge. He was a nobody then, and he's kind of cat. I mean, he was this is post-Fantastic Four. True, but like those movies flamed out, pun intended twice. That's a double pun. Yeah, they uh, surfed out of theaters as fast a, as they came. It's a single pun because mine references that movie and this movie. It would be um, a stretch to call that a good movie. You're still in single pun territory. They certainly don't rock. Uh, it's okay. I had trouble seeing them. They weren't very good. Yeah. It's invisible. Invisible. Uh, Fantastic Four. More like two pieces of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Or like subtastic, subtastic. Um, yeah, you're right. He this was very early on. This is before we all fell in love with him. Like I think like film people fell in love with him in the like Scott Pilgrim era. Era that came out 2008. Yeah, so he was about to. He was. He was about he was, to get big, and then yeah, and and uh, he does have room to shine in this, but yeah. he was clearly cast as. The Sean Pertwee in uh, in Event Horizon role, the like hot headed mechanic who's just yep. being an asshole and he swears and he tries to fight people, but like that the character grows so much as the movie goes on. Like yep. at the beginning, he's like, yeah, he's the hot head dude, and then they immediately undercut that with well, and then and then you kind of think like you think he's a heartless asshole because even yeah. though he makes a good point that they shouldn't go save the people, he's just the way he delivers it. As this, like, fuck them. We need to go save us and the son that, even though his point is valid and proven very right by the end of the movie, um, you do, like, you don't side with him in that moment. You side with Cyril the doctor, who is very calm, feels compassionate, gives a good reason. But you're like, yeah, this this hothead doesn't even care about saving people. Doesn't even want to consider it. And then... It's so great by the end of the movie because he he has been acting out of the best interests of Earth, not himself. Like, he easily decides to sacrifice himself for the crew. He sacrifices other people. Like, he meant what he said, that everyone was expandable. He just – he's so good at selling the I'm a brash punk that it doesn't feel like he, he meant it at first. Yeah, and and we're introduced to him being hot-headed in uh, there's a breakfast scene where he's being rude to everyone and you're like, oh, he's this kind of dude. And you can yeah. see why they cast a Chris Evans dude, which because when you see Chris Evans, you're like, eh, this guy's going to be a douchebag. And then well, especially with literally cut at the beginning. Yeah, he literally <laughs> like smiles at you and says one line and you're like, oh, actually, he's kind of charming. And now yeah. he's known as like, you know, a sweetie. But that, back then he was just like, 
he was a jock type. He was a Chris Hemsworth, you know, before his whole turn as, as Thor type guy. Yeah, and all the Chris's except one got good. One started out good and got terrible. And then uh, the other three just kept getting better with age, baby. Chris Pine, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Evans, all good. Yeah. Chris Rock? Pratt. <laughs> yeah, Chris Pratt, I think, really blew all of his promise. I wonder if he'll ever come back to come back to us. He had the most promise. And he's I literally think. only good in the in Parks and Rec and the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Yeah, like you go to 2006 and you're comparing Chris's, you're putting all your money on Pratt. Yeah. And then four or five years later, you're like, ooh, man, tight race. And then Hemsworth is at the bottom. And now it's like... The other three are constantly jockeying for best Chris. And after and Wonder Woman, Pine is kind of, you know, standing Pi- at the top. Se- secretly, Pine's my favorite. Not secretly. Like, he is my favorite. He is so good in those fucking Star Trek movies. And he is he is amazingly funny. He is super funny. I'm a Hemsworth guy. I know it's an easy choice to make. But uh, especially after, like, uh, Ragnarok. Cap- Cabin in the Woods and Ragnarok. Now I'm like, oh, he's, like, actually very funny. But, yeah, Chris Evans is the, is the sweet boy, the one who you're like, you're like, I want him to, you know. Chris Evans is my favorite I want, I want Chris life. Evans to date my wife. Yeah. Chris Evans is my favorite in real life. Yeah. Yeah. He, he seems like he'd be the easiest to, like, just fit into my life to be like, yeah, I want to get, like, I want to get, like, brunch with Chris Evans. Whereas Chris he, Hemsworth, I feel like it would be distracting about how cool he is. Well, Chris Evans actually feels like he is Captain America in real life. Like, he's always says the right thing. He always feels like he just is like it. Now, I know a lot of this is just from, like, public statements and Twitter stuff, but it truly feels like. He is like the modern day Jesus Christ or something like where you ask him something and he is like wise and like says the most compassionate thing you'd want him to say in that moment. Like he's very good on Twitter and all of his set. Like if, if it turns out that there's something I know people say this and it's a shitty thing to say because it's like you're saying that, oh, I hope nothing bad happens to this uh, person because they did something terrible it's shitty to say because like you should just be hoping there's not uh people that did terrible things to to uh hypothetical people but yeah chris evans i think would hurt as like a morally uh righteous person who seems to like practice what he preaches yeah i i agree and but the and he dated jenny slate yeah he, he dated jenny slate on and off can you think of a better move like he didn't he and didn't... they have a and they had a super amicable breakup and that when someone said something shitty about her he like wrote this amazing thing about like uh like um about like made uh said something shitty about like him dating a jewish person like i i remember what he wrote was like shared rightfully around as like oh yeah that was the best fuck off while still like imparting knowledge for impressionable people that would um that would look up to him hopefully is like how you deal with that kind of thing yeah and he's uh and it's i don't want to see him reduced to what he was typecast in in the sunshine era which was like the the mean the mean jock douchebag um 
And and in this movie, he yeah, he actually is introduced as being a hothead who like fights with Killian Murphy because Killian Murphy uses up all their time to send a message back to Earth, and uh, Chris Hemsworth has to like go sit in therapy, and like he has this beautiful moment where they immediately turn the movie around because Alex Garland, while he's pragmatic, also is like very much interested in the things that make us unique and interesting, yeah. not playing into typecasts and playing into stereotypes and tropes the way Event Horizon does. And uh, he he immediately is like seen he immediately like joins into the therapy session and is like like I want to see waves. Like that would make me happy right now. That'll help calm yeah. me down. And you and then you sort of like sit and see like his big goofy smile because he is kind of a dork. And you're like Oh, like now I see his point of view. Like he literally didn't get to say goodbye to his family before yeah. doing the suicide mission. And he seems to be one of the only people that truly understood it could be a suicide mission. Yeah. And that, that's sort of give and take the movie makes the whole time where it's like incredibly grim and pragmatic, but also is about the awe of the human experience is so wonderful. And it's what makes Alex Garland such an interesting writer because he's not just about um, uh, ratcheting up. Hey, I can make this a little scarier. I can make this a little tauter. I can make this a little more grim. I can make this a little more depressing. He's like, he keeps finding these, like, it's like a rays of sunshine in like a mud puddle. Like he can, he can find, I guess it's a, a, a terribly awkward <laughs> metaphor, but he keeps finding like the, these rays of light in a dark room. Um, and it, and then that's what I think really, Chris Evans sort of, I think, exemplifies what the movie is really about. And it's about, a group of hardworking scientists who all want the same goal, who are pushing towards completing that goal. It's about actual rational conversations about this stuff and not losing the human aspect in it. Yeah, I think that's 100% right. And, um, you know, one of the other main things that I, I've kind of touched on a little that I think this movie does so well is it is so good at implying all you need to know without spelling anything out. And, and as such, it really rewarded this watch. And I'm not going to make my third watch as, as far removed from my first to the second because they are giving you not much but enough story beats to let your imagination run wild. I mentioned Mark Strong and how he killed the crew. Was he always a religious zealot? We talked a little bit about the sun. And did he convert the crew? They were did all he, sitting. Yeah. The, did they were all sitting in the sunroom? Like, were they tied up? Were that? I don't know. I don't think they were. Or did he just like fucking get the, trick them into going to the room and crank up the heat? Like exactly. Like it's dramatically compelling, but in the in the best way where it's not like it, it, it. There's not necessarily clues, but there's enough to give you to go. Like the sun dying. Like how they ended up on this mission. Like. You know, you don't need to see how it happened, but you think of what that does to everyone's mind and the stakes that they're under without it truly like spelling it out like an Armageddon where you have a bunch of people talk about how important it is to save the planet. One one other thing that I think uh, – so one example of this that I think I, that I really, really love uh, is the way the sun has an obsessive quality. Like there is something about how – bright and how powerful it is that like lends yourself to almost be drawn in in this crazy way to it and we kind of see that with Cyril who starts out in the movie he's trying to see how high he can get the vision filter so he can see how bright it is without causing serious damage or damage for a long period of time 
And he seemed, he's like, let's do 4%. She's like, 4% will destroy your eyes. How about 3.1? He's like, fucking do it. 3.1, yeah, three. baby. But he is the calm and rational and compassionate one. And he never passes beyond that. But like, when he, when the captain is dying and he's about to get engulfed by the, the flames of the sun, he keeps asking like, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? What are you seeing? And um, not like in a way that anyone even's like, hey, that's totally insensitive. He just is truly like, I need to know what this is like. There's a power here that's calling me to the point that when he gets when he has to uh, die because they left him on the airlock, his first thing is like, OK, well, I'm going to die on this ship. I'm going to go to the sun room and turn it to full blast and be engulfed by that flame. And you even see the parts in between where like by the time they get on uh the the Icarus one, you see all these blisters on his lips and like uh like sunburn and stuff like that, like really implying that he's been spending more time in that sunroom than we've seen, and he is growing increasingly obsessed by it, and then of course he lets himself die that way. And I like that too, because even though there's not necessarily um a parallel between him and Pinbacker, like it feels like there could be like it feels like, is it possible that eventually Pinbacker, like, kind of was doing the same thing and then went fucking crazy? Because we, we see the end result of someone who just keeps going into the sun. That's Pinbacker's horribly cooked body. But, but fucking Cyril, who seems like a normal, calm, rational, he's the guy that you really almost see as the voice of reason and the protagonist at the beginning. Like, He's starting to get kind of super obsessed with it too. Like, I it's just love like an addiction those- narrative. Like, he literally is wearing sunglasses and his skin is getting bad. Like, <laughs> yeah, but like, it's it's so on the margins. Like, the story is there. Like, I jokingly referred to it as Dark Souls uh, at the beginning, but one of the reasons why Dark Souls works so well as a video game is the way it tells its story with giving you seventy percent of the narrative, right? That's the that's the whole thing. It is not giving you the whole story. It's making you make connections with the little parts that you get to see. But it's not like just throwing out random shit and going, I don't know, figure this out. That's a weird mystery or that's a weird thing that you can dive in on or it goes nowhere. Like it feels like Alec Gardner had a script that was 100% and then ripped out pages of it. So that it still forms a complete narrative with all these things that you need to make the connections yourself. And that's like amazing storytelling when done well, but also the type of storytelling that you can easily miss on a first watch. I agree. And and the fact that so many of the the implied things in this movie uh, missed me the first time. Uh, make it so rewarding as sci-fi because all of the weird implications about sun worship and what this 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 plan means and the fact that the ship is named Icarus, which is like really ominous. They should not have done that. Icarus failed, <laughs> by the way. Um, and he was it was an act of hubris. Like there's a lot of shit in there that you're like, you're like, well, what does it mean that? this is this and then on the next watch you're like i think i have a good answer for why why they were all sitting in the sunroom when they find the corpses or um yeah. why the ship died or why they didn't drop the payload like there's so many there's so many specifics in the plot that that are kind of left in the background in the way that my favorite movie 
uh, the thing leaves in the background as well. Like when they discover uh, the 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 Norwegian uh, settlement, they uh, they imply about that basically they had the same experience. Yeah, that a bunch of bad shit happened here, but they're not like showing you flashbacks. It's not. There's not. Hey, like, fucking, Peter. But, if you want to see what happened, do I have some great news? <laughs> God. They, they made a movie about it. Yeah, it's not that bad of a movie, but like I actually kind of like it. All of yeah. the all of the 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 hunches behind that movie are so ill informed or, or, or so ill advised. Like, like you know what that that really awesome scene and the thing where your brain is just supposed to be filling in gaps of how awful this place was before it burned to the ground. Yeah, let's uh, let's well, they just also, show you. They also did the dumb thing of like, what if it. Uh, what if it happened, like, basically exactly yeah. the same? So uh, what if it unfolded it... under this? Like, because we want to, we don't, the fans don't want to remake, so we're going to call it a prequel. But, like, what if everything happened, like, blood tests, the whole thing, basically? Uh, so one of the things I love about that movie is that you think Joel Edgerton is the McCready stand-in. Uh, and you're like, and then as the movie goes on, you realize Mary Elizabeth Winstead is actually McCready. That's awesome. Uh, this movie does a lot of interesting shit like that, sort of reversals of expectation that really keep you on your toes. I, th- I think that you're expecting also like Cliff Curtis to become pinbacker at some point, but like either he doesn't have enough time or he has a sense of perspective. Yeah, and uh, the last thing I really want to talk about before we get into final thoughts, which we kind of alluded to, is like, man, this movie is just fucking gorgeous. Like, it really is. I mean, if you like yellow, I've got great news for you. I think you you could make a, 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 a the weirdest triple feature in history with like, we'll call it the primary color trilogy. Where you watch this, which is yellow planet, essentially, uh, and then red planet, and then the BBC series. Blue Planet, and that's your movie marathon, the primary colors. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, it is it is so yellow, but it allows for like – and I, I wouldn't be surprised if this way Danny Boyle was like called to it. It's like, ooh, we're going to be shooting so much bright light, I can make some amazing silhouettes, which is like, you know, a, a great way to make some uh, wonderful shots. And this movie's filled with it and the bright light contrasting with like how dark things get when they're away from the sun – uh, and the amount of close-ups he uses to kind of show the activity or the heat from a very, like, zoomed-in perspective. Like, I this, – this is so masterfully, like, shot. The cinematography is amazing. Like, people joke about the every frame a painting meme uh, or not even a meme. Like, the sincerity of, like, that um, that Twitter account and stuff like that. But this really feels like I would hang most shots from this movie on my wall. It is gorgeous. It is a gorgeous movie. And I think that it has aged really well in a yeah. way that a lot of these movies don't because it, it's not about big space battles. The movie is never about big space battles. And I think that's maybe why some people are kind of disappointed in the fact that it kind of turns into a slasher movie. But like the movie isn't about them, you know, fighting space monsters or space zombies. It's literally about them trying to overcome the pragmatics of space and time. The whole Benedict Wong thing where he, uh, the character's name is Trey. Trey makes a... Fucks up. A mistake of 1.1%. Yeah, he just forgot to turn the shield. Because he had to manually override the uh, controls on the ship because... To change course. 
because they changed course to go to the Icarus one. And like, he plot. And the whole thing is like, he spent all this time plotting out all the calculations so they could get to the Icarus one so they could get the thing. And you see him kind of plotting out what that's going to take. They're going to have to go around the planet. He works out the calculations. And the thing in that movie is like, he did all the complicated stuff and forgot the button that he needed to press to also do something. Um, which I could see people thinking is like, oh, that's a dumb, like Prometheus, like, plot hole but i think it also just speaks to like that is shit that happens like people for like he did the complicated thing and he executed perfectly and he forgot to hit the one little button he had a like, tiny crew he was overriding the ai which couldn't 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 help he, or adjust for him he is the physics guy so think about in your workplace how often the guy whose job it is to drop drops the ball and yeah. <laughs> and like he is the not sorry he's not the physics guy he's he's like the pilot guy he's, he's like the pilot the, guy yeah, so his job is essentially like that's his job. He ran the calculations three times over. He just forgot to run that, and he couldn't send back a signal to Earth because um, they were out of range. Um, so he couldn't, you know, be like, "Hey, these are my calculations. You guys got the same numbers, right?" Um, yeah, but it's like, it's not that. It's the it's the one tiny mistake is catastrophic in space, and that's why it works. It is a minor thing. Yeah, but if he reached back to you know Houston or whatever future Houston is, and they, he said like I did all this stuff, they might be like, hey, uh, while you're at it, can you um, Move the adjust shield? the fucking shield? And he would have yeah. been like, <laughs> thank God. Uh, yeah, exactly. But he uh, that the whole Benedict Wong plot, I think, kind of points me in the direction of what I really want to say about this movie is that Alex Garland demonstrated a true grasp of the, how the human condition uh, measures up against sci-fi. And he's been showing that again and again and again. And what I love about this movie is that I, I kind of hinted earlier, but it's almost like it's, it's like, you know, a hipster version of Armageddon. Uh, I say that as a joke, but like it is the the respectable dramatic version of it's like the the artsy version of um, these these movies like the core and the day after tomorrow and Armageddon these like big gaudy senseless terrible like just you know apocalypse epics that have like no real sense of internal logic whatever he was just like you know what let's strip all the bullshit out let's just make it about a crew of like eight people let's make them all very competent let's make it about what the actual human condition is like and how that affects the crew and the whole benedict wong thing where he makes that one mistake he's there nobody can comfort him he, he's essentially put on suicide watch and is on like a thorazine drip for most of the rest of the movie and when he finally successfully kills himself, he it's because Cyril wasn't watching out for him. Like the, the, the crew all fit together in these pieces. And he understands that these people both have personal relationships and dramatic relationships together and, prof- and, and the, the professional relationships. So like all, there's all these interlocking parts and Alex Garland is really concerned with like this person's on the crew. So his job would be doing this. And Cyril was there to help the mental health of the crew. And then he wasn't there. So that means that Benedict Wong didn't have someone watching out for him and maybe guiding him out. The, the rest of the crew was just like, we just need to drop this fucking bomb off. Keep him on his Thorazine drip. And like they ignored him. And there's a scene where Killian Murphy is basically before they decide to, they're like, we're running out of oxygen. And Killian Murphy is like, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm for it. Go kill him, which is not what you expect the Killian Murphy character to say, even with kill in his name. 
Actually, I mean, I, I, that is what I expect Killian Murphy to say in most movies. In this one, it felt like he was the level-headed, nice guy compared to Chris Evans. And then he was like, literally, we don't have an option. Like, yeah, he should probably be one of the guys that, that gets, you know, killed to conserve our oxygen to make sure we deliver this payload. This is already a suicide mission. Like, we're all going to fucking die anyways. Let's just make it work. Um, and, and then they go up there, and then Chris Evans is like, I'm going to go up there. And he's like, you know, against protest from Rose Byrne. Like, it's a very dramatic conversation. Yeah. And they find Benedict Wong dead. And then Chris Evans feels awful. Yeah. Well, Chris Evans is the only one, like, he he's the one saying we have to kill him. But he's not psyched about it. Uh Killian Murphy, you get a sense of like a sociopath flash. Like, yeah, he literally says like, what do I care? Yeah, of course, go kill him. Like, he's like, what does it matter at this point? Where I just love how that kind of speaks to the human condition. And by making all the characters really believable and not getting into the apocalypse uh, epic heroism bullshit, they steer clear of that with the score mostly. They steer clear of that with the editing. They don't make Killian Murphy into some god they make him into a normal dude who's making pragmatic steps to save the world and it makes it so much more relatable and it makes it so much more emotionally rending well you know what else he cut out which is the most important part i think from the that kind of hollywood disaster movie template what the explanation like these fucking movies, Core, Armageddon, Deep Impact, like Day After Tomorrow, bend their asses over backwards to have some faux bullshit scientific reason that something's happening. And then they have all these scientific speak by probably a terrible screenwriter. And that's why there are people like Neil deGrasse Tyson who are like, well, actually, uh, <laughs> um, like the core of the earth could never do that. They, But they don't try in this movie. Like the sun's going out. That's what you need to know. The why is not important. Like, I'm just going to show you what the effect of that is to the human condition, to this crew as they try to complete a task. All you need to know, sun going out, here's the thing they need to send to the sun and it'll work. And like, that is important. Like, I don't need to be explained everything, Uh, especially when you're explaining nonsense. Like, just go have your fun even even things, movies that are accomplishing something or trying to accomplish something very different than this movie, go have your fun uh, disaster movie. Like, don't – you don't need to spend 20 minutes of the movie to explain it or have people figure out bullshit. It's not because, like, I really am insulted that you're treating science like that, like Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's not. It's what do you lose while you're spending all that time trying to make me buy your bullshit you're losing characterization you're losing plot development you're losing a bunch of stuff that i would be more interested in you pursuing by like trying to go like we got it we got a reason the core is blowing up of the earth 100 percent, because he knows that people only have enough emotional they only have enough emotional elasticity to accept so much right and the fact and, and pulling in a moment like that, that that where essentially a lot of times they they don't hand wave away the plot, but they just like strip it down to the essentials. And there's a, there's one great moment when uh, fucking Michelle Yeoh is in this movie, like cinema queen is in this movie. We haven't talked about her, um, and she. She, uh, she, there's a conversation where the, the ship is, is expanding and contracting the metal and Chris Evans says it out loud. And then she goes like, 
I know, I know the science flyboy, yeah. and it's great because it's essentially Alex Garland playing with the audience and being like, "Yeah, these guys are having a lot of conversations you're not <laughs> seeing." Like, yeah. don't they don't f- need to explain shit to each other all the time. It makes yeah. no sense because that's the problem with these movies is that like, there's it, you know, if there is a science officer and there is a military officer, the science officer is like, science officer is like, well, and then the asteroid, and the the, the military guy's like, speak plain English, like. He's like, sometimes when bubbles get too big, they burst. And everyone's like, yeah, they do. <laughs> it's like, no, dude, they sent this fucker to space. He yeah. knows how a spaceship works. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I love I love that the movie is, like, actually t- playing with the idea you just you just hit on that, like, like, uh, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of shit going on behind scenes, uh, behind the screen. Don't don't worry about it. Focus on the emotions of what's happening and what the implications are for humanity as a whole and yada, yada. I do think uh, the movie is primarily focused on Cyril uh, Pinbacker, uh, Killian Murphy, and Chris Evans. Um, Michelle Yeoh and Rose uh, Byrne are in this movie, and they're very good. But they're just not given much to do from a character arc perspective. Like Hiroyuki Sonata is not given as much to do. He's this like awesome Japanese the actor. Captain, yeah. And I, I grew up watching, well, I grew up, but in junior high, I watched a lot of his, like, fucked up, like, Yakuza movies and samurai movies and shit that he made. Um, and he, he rules. And he's not given much to do except for be heroic and be very handsome. So Yeah, I mean, I think because they're playing with, like, Chris Evans and Killian Murphy being, like, flip side of coin and then um, Cyril and Mark Strong being the flip side of a coin in a weird way or, like different tracks so that they just and everyone else is just crew but that means like two of the best actors like i love rose Byrne, i love michelle yo and you know they definitely have like good moments but they don't have any sort of um arc even feels like stretching it for this movie but they don't have any of that like implication stuff except i guess a little bit of rose Byrne and killian murphy's relationship whatever's going on there but that feels more perfunctory and it's just one little scene. Yeah, that's more about the possibility of a relationship than about the reality of one. Um, yeah. I don't think the Rose Byrne thing is is particularly well cooked. But no. um, but uh, honestly, though, like I was talking about emotional elasticity and all that bullshit, like the fact that you you can only care about so much in these movies. I do think that like the, the fact that they're not asking you to care about every member of the crew with the same level of, of dramatic import and the fact that they they still feel like real people when they die, like they weren't tropes when they died, is so important to the movie. Like they have yeah. they have a little bit of humanity. They're very they're all very good actors and they're just given a little bit of room to play in, but not so much that it distracts from the fact that this is Killian Murphy's mission and it's about Chris Evans being the pragmatist and Rose Byrne being more emotional and yada yada. Yeah, it just it would have been nice if they didn't uh just stick to those kind of like standard uh gender roles or whatever for these movies that uh yeah, Rose Byrne, of course. Uh, I forget who our guest recently was like. Of course, she's the she's the parental one. Like that's the typical role that they always uh, put uh, on women in movies. So that there is a scene that kind of contradi- contradicts that. It doesn't make up for it, but it does kind of contradict that because Alex Garland does not give a shit about macho bullshit. Find me a scene in 
uh, Annihilation or Ex Machina where the violence seems cool and like rad like it doesn't exist like he's not interested in that macho bullshit and even in dread which is like ostensibly a badass action movie he infuses all of that with like this like fascist grossness that really like makes it uh a compelling back and forth for the audience and in this there's a scene where the guys are wrestling later in the movie uh chris evans and uh, killian murphy are wrestling in the movie and the two women uh rose bird and michelle yo literally are just like they just look at each other and just like walk out and they're just like you guys fucking figure this shit out like it's not our jobs to fucking parent you yeah i like i do like that moment where they literally are like all right well we're gonna go try to save the ship you idiots because that is the movie in a that is a movie in a nutshell like it's not about ego it's not about you know your your emotional hunch it's about doing the right thing well we should get to final thoughts which i will do right now uh i um let me start. So I, I yeah, I, this was a movie that was kind of like, you know, in the back of my head, like poking me a little like, you got to watch it again. You got to watch it again. You know, I felt like I liked it. I felt like I had some problems with it, but it was, you know, unlike some of these other movies I mentioned, like Slumdog Millionaire 127 Hours, where I really liked it, but I have never had that kind of, ooh, I need to watch that movie again. Uh, this this kind of stayed with me. I picked it up on Blu-ray. Uh, and I, I've just have always been like one of these days I'm going to rewatch it when I, and, uh, I'm so glad we did it for this month. And I was expecting to have a much more like, here's some things I like, here's some things I don't like. And instead, like, yeah, I, this, this is up there with his other masterpieces, train spotting and 28 days later. Like this movie, uh, is fucking amazing. And if you have only seen it once, and you were caught up on some of the same things that we talked about. I cannot recommend watching this again because it was amazing how it's it's not that I just like am used to it or because I expect it. It's amazing how much of that I was just flat out wrong about. Like I was so wrong in that I thought this took on a supernatural element and I thought that uh, it came out of nowhere and it ruined the problem solving of the scientific space stuff of the other stuff. And it, it, it kept its horror, uh, horror elements, uh, it like touched on it, but didn't, it either needed to go deeper or get rid of them entirely. And like, I was just wrong about a bunch of stuff. My memory and what I got out of the movie the first time was, was incorrect based on what's presented on screen. And I think it's just easy to do. And if you saw it in 2007, especially so, because, God, we were all wondering, like, here's 28 Days Later, this, like, maybe the first great horror movie of the new millennium, and now he's making something that all the reviews are saying is a space horror movie? Ooh, I love space! I love horror! I was I was psyched, and I just, I think I missed a lot of it, wondering where it was going, wondering when it was going to get to that 2001 or uh, Event Horizon or anything else, and yeah, so glad we revisited it. Um, but it feels like one that almost, if you are there going, yeah, it's three and a half, four stars, well-directed, uh, take, take another look, baby. I'm on that page. I think this is a movie very much worth revisiting, especially once you've kind of gotten over the shock of, of the horror ending. I think people were wanted to ignore a lot. A lot of people wanted to ignore the signs that it was becoming a horror movie. Um, and essentially... I, I I think I said mostly what I want to say. Hold on. 
this is this is a showcase for both Danny Boyle and and uh, Alex Garland. Alex, I've talked a lot about how much I love Alex Garland's script and how much space he gives a lot of the characters. And you know, though I wish there was some space for different characters, this this really demonstrates what he would do later in his career, especially when he started taking on a director role. And uh, the the fact that Danny Boyle grabs it and he said he knows exactly how to play each moment makes me feel like I wish like Danny Boyle and him would get together and do another movie. Like I feel like fucking Alex Garland has probably written like 10 scripts that and he just decided to direct, you know, two of them. Um, and the the whole Danny Boyle thing is so interesting to me because he doesn't seem like he'd be a good fit for for uh, Alex Garland. Alex Garland is very pragmatic. He's very uh, much about like f- emotions having their right space. And he's very much about the, the, the nuts and bolts plotting. Whereas like Danny Boyle movies can often be episodic or almost plotless. And it's so strange that they found a kinship for just a few movies um, because, and they fit so well. And Danny Boyle knows how to lean into that sort of the surrealness of life and the, but yet also the pragmatic nuts and bolts nature of life. Um, and, and I don't know, like 127 hours is, is that essentially it's, it's as much a spiritual journey as it is a fucking journey about survival and someone needing to chop off their, their goddamn arm to, to make it, uh, to the next stage of their life. Um, and I, I, I love that they found this kinship for just, just a few movies. And I hope they find yeah. another another project again in the future, even though, you know, they both have sort of found their own spaces. Considering how much I loved Ex Machina and Annihilation, I feel like Danny Boyle might need Alec Gardland a little more than Alec Gardland needs Danny Boyle right now. Yeah. Um, because, like, I would say Annihilation is up there with the best of anything Danny Boyle's directed. It's not a, it's not a knock on Danny Boyle. It's a it's praise for how good Alec Garland is, not just as a screenwriter, but as a director. So, uh, but yeah, Danny Boyle can sometimes be all flash and little or no substance. So I, I do feel like Danny Boyle, if Danny Boyle does ever direct anything, uh, that I'm extremely interested in, I hope Alec Garland gives him script notes because he's good at writing stuff. Cause essentially like there's millions, which is based on a book. And then he did sunshine in 28 days later, which are his other two best movies besides the train spotting ones. Like um he 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 wrote, he wrote Danny Boyle's uh the one of the best horror movies uh of the 21st century and also one of the best science fiction slash horror movies. I think probably people need to watch it again. It just doesn't feel like something that's enough in conversation for people to be revisiting it. It's not on streaming platforms, which means there hasn't been this like natural reassessment of it over the last few years because it's been on netflix for five years and everyone gave it another world because it was available and i think you know when 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 these movies deserve a rewatch and you need to seek them out they it can it cannot necessarily flow over the public consciousness as easy as something else so uh yeah give it another watch and we have one more left peter um i'm looking at my notes this is probably gonna be our most obscure one of the month looks like uh uh, Aileen, Portrait of a Serial Killer, I think. Come on, Aileen. Aileen, Portrait, yep, I think it's the documentary about the movie that uh, Charlie Starr won an Oscar for. Oh, Aileen Warnos. Yeah, Aileen Warnos. 
That's what it says on my notes, but I have spilled quite a lot of Diet Coke on it. Uh, oh, wait a second. Hold on. Hold on. The Diet Coke is drying. And, oh, it was Invisible Ink Diet Coke. Oh, that's going to sprite. Um, <laughs> Can you spell oh, the letters is- out, like, in dramatic fashion, like, one at a time? Should I do partial letters? From yeah. Different it's like an upside down V. And then like, oh, wow. Oh, no, that's an so, A now. So, uh, eyes in the middle, that becomes clear very early on. And then there's an A at the beginning. Uh, and then an L comes in there somewhere in between the A and the I. And then an E-N. So, yeah, Eileen, I think, Peter, unless you have some other thoughts. Um, no, let's just goofily pronounce it as alien. We're doing alien next week. Oh, not that, it, not that anyone would call it that. They call it Eileen. Mm. Yeah, the the movie that's usually considered a big drop in quality from the Duelist, but we're gonna give it a shot. <laughs> um, and that is in between be his gra- two masterpieces, Black Rain, and uh, with Michael Douglas and uh, uh, the Duelists. Have we? Have we? I, I like Black Rain. Um, have we? I like the Duelists. Have so we I guess talked about? Even. The fact that we apparently get off on being withholding, that we, like, keep doing sci-fi months and stuff, and then we're like, well, we're not going to do Alien. We're not going to do Aliens. We we're did Alien, Alien Resurrection. Resurrection in our first four months, Yeah, and we've never done one of the other ones, and, yeah, I, I've i actually rewatched it twice, because I watched it with the commentary, and did absorb enough to actually uh, <laughs> offer much. I didn't take notes on it, so I don't remember any of the commentary, but that's how much I liked it. I'm like, I'm just going to watch it again. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's truly like a singular work, and I have no no fucking uh, I have no fucking words for how excited I am to do it. Yeah, it's um, gonna be really good. Uh, and we we're supposed to have two guests, uh, people I know, Dwayne and Crystal, in real life, but they are in the process of of writing and inking a comic book for uh, for release. So they're kind of approaching that deadline. So we're gonna invite them back on uh, in a future episode. Um, and uh, but they are huge alien fans, so we have to save them either aliens or alien three so they can talk about aliens because they were they were bummed they had to cancel. But that means it's another BS talk them all Pete and Aaron episode. Is that the we love to watch theme? It's the yellow back theme. Oh, okay. <laughs> and good night. <laughs> good night. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone She's always gone too long Anytime she goes away Wonder this time where she's gone Wonder if she's gone to stay Ain't no sunshine when she's gone Hey folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch, or our website wltwpodcast.com leave us a comment tell us we're doing a good job only tell us we're doing a good job we're so sensitive we're sensitive boys we're soft boys 
And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available, if you don't use iTunes, we're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again... Above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.